tell you that one of those three people has killed a bear with a bow, you'd never guess it. I promise you, you'd guess the wrong person. There's a mighty bear hunter up here. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter number 12. Back in the Gospel of John in a couple of weeks. Of course, today is the last day of 2023, so if you had plans for this year, you better get to it. <laughs> Time is running out, running out. Um, tomorrow is the day that everybody makes a brand new start, right? Gonna lose weight and eat healthy and get out of debt, read the Bible, and do all that. Starting tomorrow, tomorrow. You might be the more ambitious kind. Going to learn a new language, going to learn to play the violin. Violin and fiddle, that's the same instrument. It just depends on what style you're playing, right? There was the fiddle a while ago. But if you're at PCC, then it's the violin. Of course, we have those who are already living a perfect life, don't really have any improvements, so don't really have anything to change. New, Year, New Year's resolutions, the ones I enjoy are the ones that determine, I'm not going to just change a little bit, I'm going to change everything. Some of us, we would be content to lose 20 pounds, but there are some that's going to run a marathon by January and be a triathlete by the fall. God bless you. More power to you. And I think it is good to have some self-examination and to see areas of improvement. I'm not against all of that. I have my own goals that I want to meet and things that, that I want to do. Of course, most resolutions are not kept. And um, the reason for that is desire is not enough, is it? There has to be a little bit of discipline to that. Good intentions do not trump bad habits. You can want to all that you want, but you got to get up in the morning and go do it, what's called. And no person has ever improved his life, quit bad habits, built good habits without a struggle and some self-discipline. Because I'll tell you something about your flesh. It's the same as my flesh. It doesn't like that kind of thing. My flesh likes to be pampered. It likes to be indulged. But it does. Um, and um, you determine, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to exercise. Your flesh is going to say, oh, no, you're not either. <laughs> not without a fight. Not without a fight. And all of us know how that is. And so make your New Year's resolutions and Get your membership in at the gym and join everybody tomorrow at the gym that's starting out. It'll be crowded tomorrow, but just give it a few weeks. It'll thin out. It'll thin out. <laughs> maybe you win and maybe, maybe you lose. I don't know. But you know the Bible does have a lot to say about redeeming the time and being stewards of our life, and I believe that we should. The Bible says, teach us to number our days. Number our days. Nobody knows how many days that you have left. By the way, Good to see Titus with us this morning, and uh, even good to see his mom as well, Sue. <laughs> but especially good to see Titus. They were here for a long time, then they moved out to Dallas area, and uh, so good to see them in 
Uh, are you looking for a house or are you just visiting family? Just, yeah, maybe. I, I understand. Grandchildren would make you do some crazy things. What it would be. So we ought to, um, we ought to be good stewards of our time and good stewards of our life. See, then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, walk wise. And um, I don't know how much time that God will give me, how much time that I have left, but I want to make the best use of the time that God gives me. It's an interesting little story in 1 Kings 20. I preached from this before. But there was a king in 1 Kings 20 that captured an enemy in a battle and then put him in the charge of a servant and told the servant that you are to watch him, you are to guard him until I come back. And even told him that if something happens, if you lose this captive, this POW, then you're going to pay with your life. And when the king came back, he discovered that his servant had lost that prisoner. Here was his explanation. He said, as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Well, what is that? Busy here and there. And I think a lot of people live their life that way. Just busy here and there, running around, and, and don't really have a sense of purpose. And, 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 and you can be busy and accomplish nothing. A hamster running a wheel, he's busy. He's moving, but he ain't going nowhere. And a lot of people are like, they're on this wheel or on this merry-go-round. And man, they're making movement, but they're not making any progress. And I sure don't want to do that in this new year. I, I want to be busy, but I want to be productive. I want to be pro progressing, and, and I don't want to waste the life that God has given us. And so I, I'm, I'm for New Year's resolutions and I thought that I'd preach on it tonight. I'm, I'm not going to, uh, but, but I, I do pray that you have a good year. There was a psychologist back, and I'll, I'll preach in just a minute. There's a psychologist, I think back in the 1960s, he wrote a book on habits. And in that book, he said that it takes 21 days to form a new habit. 21 days. And so a lot of people jumped on that and that's become a mantra. 21 days to form a new habit. Quit smoking, get off the sugar, whatever it might be. And I think that it just depends on the habit, depends on how deeply ingrained it is, how bad do you want to quit it, who you are. I, I don't think that 21 is a, is a magic number. I do know, I do know that, that to make a new habit, I, I do know that you have to do it every day, that you have to be consistent. If you're going to go on a diet, it's not going to do to do that diet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. All right, you're going to have to do it every day. If you're going to read your Bible, it's not going to do it just to do it hit and miss. You've got to do it every day. And that's how we live the Christian life. We live it daily. Day by day. That phrase is found several times in the Bible. Day by day. Day by day. Daily. Daily life. And, and so, so that's how that we ought to live. And, and, and I, I, well, there's a statement, and, and I, I won't preach on it, but I was, I was thinking about this earlier this week. There's, there's a statement eight times in the Bible that says on the first day of the first month. First day of the first month. And eight times there is something that major happens on the first day of the first month. And tomorrow is the first day of the first month of the new year. Praying that 2024 is a great year. Well, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I'll give you a thought 
that I may pray would help us this morning. Genesis 12 and verse number 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered and the spoils they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land and the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto thy seed, Will I give this land? And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. We could probably make the case for Genesis 12 being one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. The history of the world. The history of the nation Israel. And really, the story of redemption would be incomplete without what happens in Genesis chapter 12. This is where God calls Abram, later called Abraham, out of the earth of the Chaldees. The promise is to make him the father of a great nation. And so the history of the world, the rest of the world, really flows from this one man. Some of you may know this, but the book of Genesis covers 2,100 years of history. Genesis 1 to 11 deals with the first 2,000 years. Chapter 12 through chapter 50 deals with only 100 years. So the first 11 chapters, 2,000 years, 12 through 50, deals with 100 years, which tells you, boy, history really slowed down in Genesis chapter 12. Something major happened where the story comes to a very slow crawl. But what happened is the calling of Abraham. God looks down into the land of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he sees a family of pagan idolaters. And from that family of idolaters, he calls one man out, Abram, to follow him that man obeys the voice of God. He leaves his family, leaves his country, he leaves his kindred, and he begins to follow a God he has never seen and begins a journey to a land that he has never heard of. I was thinking about new beginnings in the Bible, and this is a new beginning. Creation, that was a new beginning. When Noah stepped off of the ark onto that new world, that is a new beginning. When Israel came across the Red Sea into the wilderness, then Canaan, that's a new beginning. When they crossed the Jordan, those are new beginnings. Well, this is a brand new beginning for this man. In fact, it's the end of one era of history and the beginning of another. Those who have studied dispensationalism know that we have a new dispensation starts here. You have the dispensation of human government after the flood, but now you have what's called the dispensation of promise. It, it is literally a new division in history, certainly a new beginning for Abraham and Sarah. And the command from God is very clear. Here it is. Get thee out. Get thee out. So the command to Abraham is a command to separate. Command to separate. If you notice in the text that there is a command to separate from a place, get thee out of thy country. 
and then to separate from a people and from thy kindred. It's not stated, but I believe it is strongly implied that he is to separate from a practice, the idolatry of that land and his family. And the thing about it is, is that God had blessings for Abraham, but he's not going to bless him where he was. In order for me to bless you, I've got to get you to a place where I can bless you because there is a place of God's blessing. And so many people want God to bless them in their life, but you first have to get to a place where God can bless you. Get thee out. Get thee out. Who lines you? Get thee thee to Zarephath, and I've commanded a widow woman to feed you there. But you're going to have to get there where God's told you to get if you want the blessings of God. And I I would ask you this morning, are you in a place of blessing? It could even be a physical place that's holding back the blessings of God in your life. It could be be a person, somebody that hinders your walk with God. It it could be a practice, some habit, some sin that, that, that has stopped you from enjoying the blessings of God. But you have got to be in the right place for God to bless you. There's a lot of people that this year, they're going to pray, boy, God, I need you to change my finances this year. Well, last year was tough. Biden economy is killing me. So, Lord, I need you to do a miracle in my finances. But you know, you're going to have to be in a place where God can bless your finances. I believe that God can pour out blessings on your money. I believe that. I believe God also could send the canker worm to devour the bag. I believe that God, I believe that you can do everything that you can and God can multiply that, but you've got to be a good steward. You've got to learn how to manage your money, quit living off of credit cards. God, by the way, God's not going to do that part for you. You understand that? God ain't paying your credit cards off. God's not paying your student loan debt. You're going to have to do that. But if you get to the right place, then you can experience the blessings of God. So God calls Abraham out and then he makes a covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, he didn't make this covenant with the world. And he didn't make this covenant with the church. He makes it to Abraham and to his seed. We read it in verse 2 and 3. And in those verses, there are seven specific promises that God made to Abraham. God has asked Abraham to make a great sacrifice, moving away from your family. But here's the thing about God, is that when God requires you or asks you to make a great sacrifice, God always gives back more than he asks of you. He's asked Abraham to do a great thing, but if you'll step out by faith and if you'll believe me and obey me, I promise you that what I have in store for you is much more than what you'd had if you just stayed in the era of Chaldee. And I have found that principle to be true in my own life. There are sacrifices to serving Christ, but the rewards far outweigh the sacrifice. He has given me far more than he has asked of me. Thank God for that. So he makes this covenant with Abraham, and Abraham begins to follow God. For the next 13 years, the next next 13 chapters, the next 175 years, he becomes the greatest example of faith that the world has ever known. Whether it's having a son at the ripe old age of 100, or whether it's binding that son on an altar on Mount Moriah, getting ready to plunge a knife into his chest as a sacrifice. If you want to know how to live a life of faith, and who doesn't know that the unknown year 
requires faith. But if you want to know how to live a life of faith, then you study the life of Abraham. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith's Hall of Fame, there's more verses, eight verses that's given to Abraham than to anybody else in the chapter because he's the supreme example of living by faith. And when you look at the life of Abraham in these 13 chapters, there are two symbols in his life that I think illustrate his life of faith. And the first is a tent. The Bible says that when Abraham began following God, if I get a little, little bit more monitor to help me out, Hebrews says that he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. He sojourned. Now, now the word sojourned, it means I'm not staying here long. I'm just passing through. I'm, I'm not planting my stakes down too deep. I am a temporary resident. And he was a wanderer through this earth. He looked for a city without foundations whose builder and maker is God. So that's why it's interesting when you read the story of Abraham, you read about Abraham's tent. In fact, look at it if you would. Chapter 12, look at verse number 8. It says, He removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. Look at chapter 13 and verse 3. He went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, Bethel unto the place where his tent had been. Look at verse number 12. Verse number 12. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. Eight times it mentions Abraham's tent. Now, now when we think about a tent, we think about a camping tent. Put it up in 30 minutes, take it down in 30 minutes. We only spend in the night and maybe not the whole night, all right? That, that's what we think of. But this was his house. This is where he lived, all right? So this is a big tent. And, and, and have all of his furniture, all of his belongings, so, so when God said moved, it's a big deal to pack up this tent and move. But I believe the Bible is making a point that Abraham is a sojourner and that tent illustrates the faith of Abraham. By the way, 1 Peter calls us strangers and pilgrims. A stranger is somebody who is away from home. A pilgrim is somebody who is on his way home. And if you're going to live a life of faith, then you can't tie your stakes too much to this world. You can't be too detached to this world because this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. So don't drive your stakes too deeply down here because one of these days I'm moving to heaven. Hallelujah. So Abraham's tent. But there's another symbol in his life that demonstrates faith, and that's Abraham's altar. Four times in the life of Abraham, it says that Abraham built an altar. Now, an altar is a place of sacrifice. It's a place of surrender. It's a place of death is what it is. The first altar mentioned in the Bible is where Noah built an altar in Genesis 8 when he came off of that ark. And it's where a man comes to approach God, to worship his God, or to pray, or to ask for a favor. And Abraham had been an idolater. He has built numerous altars to pagan gods, but now he is going to build an altar to Jehovah God. And there he will commune with God, and he will consecrate himself. And there's four altars, and those altars come at a momentous time in his life. And you understand that he didn't have a church building. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have a designated place of worship. 
So whenever they wanted to worship God, they would stop and they would gather some stones and they would erect some kind of crude monument there, a, a place where you could lay a sacrifice, lay an animal on it and, and slay the animal and build a fire and, and worship God and sacrifice and maybe offer up some incense. And, and Abraham must have done that hundreds of times in his life, but in the story there are four times specifically where Abraham built an altar. And those altars are symbols of his faith. And I want to say that as we walk with God, there ought to be spiritual landmarks. There ought to be spiritual milestones that we can look back to and say that we met God there. I fear that a lot of times folks get saved and they sit down in a church pew and never experience God beyond that. You can go 20 years in the Christian experience and never, never experience God. Be at the same place now where you were 20 years ago. A lot has changed, but nothing in the Christian walk. And there's a lot of Christians that outside of a good church service, they have no communion with God. Come to church looking for a good sermon, looking for a good song, maybe looking for a good show, because it's their only chance in the week to have good thoughts about God and to worship God and commune with God. But we ought to be able to look back through years of years of walking with God and say, here are, here are places where I have met with God and God has changed me. Are there any altars in your life? Are there any milestones? Are there any landmarks where you can walk to and say that this is where, the, this is where I got saved and this is where I surrendered to God's will and this is where I gave up smoking and this is where I got rid of my anger. Somebody help me. This is where I got some peace and this is where God took that away. Are there any altars in your life? Are there some altars? Look at this first altar. It's Genesis 12, 7. I call it the altar conversion. Look at it, verse 7. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Now here's what happened. Abraham has just received the summons. He has just left home to begin this journey with God. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there. He doesn't know how to tell when he arrives. God has told him nothing. But this is the beginning. This is the first step of faith. This is the starting point of a life of faith. If I could put it in New Testament terminology, this is where he got saved. This is his conversion. This is where he begins to walk with God. You understand, he didn't come to an altar and he didn't pray a sinner's prayer and nobody walked him through the Romans road. You understand that, but he makes a clean break from the past and he's now a follower of God. And I believe that everybody ought to know the exact time and the place where you got saved. Now, you may not have written the date down. You may not know the specific date, but you ought to know in your mind that there is a place and there is a time where I began to be a follower of God. This is where I trusted him. I was going to hell right before it, going to heaven right after it. I was a son of the devil before, son of God right after it. Do you, do you have an altar of conversion? If you used to look at my birth certificate, my birth certificate says a specific place and a specific time that I was born. It doesn't say somewhere in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, during the month of June. No, that's not what it says. Specific date, 
and a specific time. Here's the reason why. Birth is a process, but it's also an instantaneous event. There's a process leading up to it. But they come the time when the baby's coming out, whether you're ready or not. And that's how salvation is. There is a process getting up to the new birth, but the new birth happens in an instant. In an instant, you say. So do you have an altar of conversion? We, we try to be very careful in our preaching not to create doubt. But I would rather some of you doubt what you have than to have false assurance of something that you don't have. And I am convinced. I am convinced that our Baptist churches are full of folks who have prayed a prayer, signed the card, did a little religion, but they never had a conversion experience. We have a generation of religious charlatans who have never been truly born again. So I'd ask you on the last day of 2023, hey, young person, do you have an altar of conversion? Could you tell me with confidence that this is where I got saved? Are you confident enough that I couldn't even talk you out of it? Do you know that you have been born again? I love to ask people, tell me your story. Where are you from? Talk to me a little bit. And if in their story there is no salvation experience, something is wrong. If in your story it's about the big fish that you caught or the game-winning shot that you took or the money that you made, but there's nothing in there about this is when I got saved, there is something wrong with your story. And by the way, if you are saved, there ought to be some evidence of that. Come on. Come on. Ought to be some evidence of it. Right. We, we go out and look at a pine tree. You'll never convince me that pine tree is an apple tree. It has bark like a pine tree. It has pine needles. It has pine cones. There are no apples on that tree. You'll never convince me that that is an apple tree. I'm looking at it. It is a pine tree. And we got a, we got a generation of Christians that don't talk like a Christian. They don't like, come on, help me. They don't act like a Christian. There is nothing about them that says they're Christian. It's all flesh, no spirit. And I'm supposed to believe that that's a pine tree? altar of conversion walking into a new year but I'm going to tell you if you walk into the new year without Christ nothing changes same struggles same sins same problems same religious gain no reality there is no newer beginning than the beginning of a new birth altar conversion there's a second altar that he builds. It's in verse 8, the next verse. The Bible says, He removed thence into a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the east, Ai on the east, Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. At the age of 75, Abraham and Sarah pack a caravan of camels, say tearful goodbyes to their family, and start off for a land that they know not of. And I cannot imagine that their families are too thrilled, but the promise of God lights their path. The first place that they come to is, is a place called Shechem in the plain of Mamre. That's where he built that first altar. But then the Bible says he moves south to a place in the desert between Bethel and Ai, Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. 
And here the Bible says that he builds an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, now here's why this altar is interesting to me. Because there's nothing significant about the altar. Now the first altar that he built, I understand, this is his first altar. This is his, his consecration to God. This is where he begins to follow God. Later on, we're going to look at two other altars that he builds, and there's something major in his life during those two altars, but in this altar, there is nothing major. There is no crisis. There is no emergency. There's nothing to ask for. He didn't just lose his job. He doesn't have somebody dying. His wife's not leaving him. His children's not going crazy. They're going bankrupt. So here's my question. Why the altar? There's nothing major, no emergencies. So why the altar? Well, it tells you in the text. He built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Do you have to have an emergency to call upon the name of the Lord? Do you have to be in a crisis to pray? So he built an altar just to be able to pray. Here's what he's doing. He is developing a heart for God. It's the altar of communion. This is where he becomes the friend of God, where he begins to enjoy the presence of God. He built an altar, listen to this, not because of an emergency, but because he wants to build a life of communion with the Lord. And most Christians have a crisis Christianity. They pray, Lord, save me. Like Peter, Lord, save me when, when the waves of life begin to beat against them. They don't have a daily walk with God, and they don't just seem to have a desire to, but I want to keep God on the line just in case something bad happens. If the only prayer that you ever pray is a prayer of desperation, then something is lacking in your Christianity. That is the faith, by the way, of a heathen. I had a neighbor. I kept inviting to church, inviting to church. He cared nothing for church until he had a crisis. And he came and asked me about coming to church. Then his crisis got over and he didn't need to come to church anymore. We have the privilege of walking with God every day, developing a life of communion, whether there is a crisis or not. I don't want every time I pray to God, it's because I need something. I've got an emergency. Sometimes I want to talk to God and I don't even have anything to ask for. I don't want to just worship God and read my Bible when I'm in a mess. I want to walk with God even when I'm not in a mess. Building a life of communion. So some Christians have a place. They, they, have a, they have a closet. They have a, a, a place out in the woods. It's a special place where they, they get alone with God. So you have an altar of communion. I had to come home the other night early. Uh, things happened to my mom, so I was in Mount Airy, North Carolina, and, and the preacher graciously let me get away early, and so I, I, I headed out and drove 10 hours home, and uh, in the morning, early, early in the morning, leaving for Houston. And, and uh, when I, I'm driving, and, and uh, I got a preacher friend. In fact, I was with him this week, Travis Alltop. And, and um, Travis Alltop has a CD. In fact, it's in the bookstore. And so I had that playing. And there's two songs. And I, to I told Daniel, you need to listen to these songs. One of the songs is What a Day. And the other song is Christ is All. And, and, I, and I, I don't, when I listen to a CD, I don't like the whole CD. I just find the songs I like, and I just loop them. And I know people think that they're crazy when they pass you by on the interstate and you're crying and you're, I'm just, I'm having church is what I'm doing. Listen to what a day and then Christ is all and then what a day. You ever done that? And I mean, I'm just, I'm just having church is what I'm doing. I don't have to have an emergency. 
I don't have to have a crisis. I, I just want to be, be with God a little longer. Do you know there's an interesting thing that happens in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham builds two altars, and then sometimes later he moves down to Egypt. There was a famine in the land. So to escape the famine, he goes down to Egypt. Egypt is always a type of the world. You know what happened when he got to Egypt, right? Pharaoh comes out, they see, his, see Sarah, beautiful woman. He lies, says, She's my sister. He's not walking by faith, he's walking by fear is what he's doing. Terrible mistake. It could have ended up costing him his life. But he got away from God, got away from that altar. Interesting thing that while he was in Egypt, he didn't build any altars. There are no altars in his life in Egypt. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know if he was ashamed of his relationship with God or if he just was out of fellowship. I don't know what it was. But in that place, there were no altars in his life life. And how many of you know that the world can steal your fellowship and steal your communion with God? And you could be in a place this morning where you can't build any altars. It's interesting though in Genesis 13, look at it. Verse 1. Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, all that he had, locked with him into the south. Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. He went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Watch this. Unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Do you know what he did? He found his way back to God. I'm in a bad place. No altars here. I'm going to go back to that last altar that I built. I'm going to go back to where I left God. I'm going to go back to that place of sweet fellowship again. I remember the times when God met me at that altar, and there is no altar here. And if you know that you are dwelling in Egypt, you need to come back to the altar of communion. You remember, do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember when you used to have thoughts about God? Do you remember when your zeal was for another world? Do you remember that your mind was always on heaven, but Egypt steals the communion that you have with God? And even now you sit here and you can't worship and you can't enjoy the service and you can't stay awake. I'll tell you what you need to do is you need to come back to the altar of communion where I used to know God. An altar of communion. There's a third altar. It's the altar of covenant. Look at chapter 13 and verse 11. Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. They separated themselves the one from the other. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, lift up now, now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it into thy seed forever. I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it. I'll give it unto thee. Then Abraham removed his tent, came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. The story of Lot runs parallel with the story of Abraham until they separate. Strife in the family, Abraham desires peace. So he tells Lot, you choose whichever part of the land that you want, I'll, I'll go in the opposite direction. 
Lot chose Sodom, a city that was filled with debauchery and sin. Moves his family there. He's more interested in raising cattle than he is children. So Sodom becomes his home. And to be honest with you, to the outsider, it looks like that Lot has gotten the better end of the deal. He gets the prime choice of land. It's well watered. It's good pasture. He becomes a very wealthy man. man. He begins to rise up in the ranks among the men of Sodom. And of course, I'm just sure that he justified it by claiming that, that he's going to be a witness to him. He's going to try to preach to them, not, not condoning their sin, but I, I'm just going to be a light. I, I'm sure that he did. But that is the choice that he made. And Abraham kept his eyes on God. He had learned the lesson about moving away from God when he went down to Egypt. I'm not making that same mistake twice. And the Bible says that the Lord, in verse 14, said unto Abram. That's precious. Nowhere in the Bible do you read where God spoke directly to Lot. But he speaks directly to Abraham. He sent two angels in Genesis 9 to the tent of Abraham. He didn't send two angels to speak directly to Lot. They didn't appear. So Abraham packs his tent up and he moves yet again. And this time he goes back to the plains of Mamre. And God walked with him. And God made him this promise about this seed and this land that's made back in Genesis 12. He repeats it to him again, expands it. Third time that the promise is made. But here's what I think. I think that Abraham was human. That's what I think. And it looked like that Lot was going to be blessed while he just wandered about. But in a moment of testing, God came to him with a promise, a reminder that God had not forgotten the covenant. And when God reminded him of that covenant, the Bible says that Abraham built an altar. And he claims the promises of God by faith. He can't see it now. Everything is by faith. But he believes God to bless him in his own time. And I think that sometimes trials and tribulations causes us to question God. Sometimes like Asaph. Why do the wicked prosper and the good suffer? And sometimes our hearts begin to faint. And we need to build an altar around the promises of God. Get a verse. Get a promise. Get a word from God. I tell you that he's never gone back on a promise and he never will. The more that you deal with men, the more cynical that you become because men will fail you, but your God has never lied to you. He's never misled you. He's never overpromised. He's never underdelivered. And this altar is where I take the horns of the altar and I commit myself to him. And no matter what happens in life, I'm clinging to the promises of God. It's where I look at the circumstances of life, but I also look at the faithfulness of God. And that is my rock during this time. There's an altar of consecration, but then there's an altar of communion. There is an altar of consecration. It's in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Look at verse number 9. They came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there. Laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son laid him on the altar upon the wood. All of her life, Sarah had dreamed of motherhood. But those dreams slipped away with the cold reality that she's grown old, past the time of being able to bear children. Abraham carried the promise that he'd be the father of a great seed, but that promise mocks him every year that passes by. But in God's own time, Sarah conceives and has a son. 
And you'd have to know that all the hopes of Isaac are bound up in that son. It is through that son Isaac that the promises of God will be fulfilled. But then the voice of God shatters the peace of his heart with a command that defies logic, it defies understanding. God was calling Abraham to prove his, life, his faith in him one more time. Not just in forfeiting his son, but in sacrificing his son. And no man in the Bible has ever been asked to do a harder thing than what Abraham has asked to do. No believer has ever been put through a harder trial than the one that God has designed for his friend, Abraham. If you review the life of Abraham, you'll find that it consists of doing difficult things. It is not easy to leave your family and to leave your country and to sojourn into a strange land. It is not easy to give Lot the choice of the land and you go your way. It is not easy to believe God for a son in your old ears. It is not easy to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. But when God says, I want Isaac, nothing harder than that. And Abraham has proven his faith time and time again. But God wants him to prove it one more time. So God speaks to him and this aged patriarch's faith is shaken to its foundation. Did God really ask him to sacrifice Isaac? Would you really ask for the dearest thing to his heart? Would God really demand something so difficult? But Abraham takes Isaac, carves him out in the Moriah, builds an altar, ties Isaac to the altar. There's two people that don't want to be on that altar. Or don't want Isaac on that altar. It's Abraham and it's Isaac. If God would have said, give me all of your flocks, gladly. If God would have said, I want you to give me all of your land, gladly. If God would have said, I want all of your gold and silver, gladly. If God would have said, your choice is servant, gladly. But Isaac. And the reality is that God didn't want Isaac. He just wanted more of Abraham. I want you to lay everything on the altar of consecration. Abraham loves Isaac more than life itself, but do you love Isaac more than God? And I wonder if you've ever built that altar. We sing songs sometimes, and I don't think we even think about what we're singing. We mouth the words, but if God was to call our bluff, I surrender all. Have thine own way, Lord. Just as I am. Whatever it takes for my will to break. Are you sure about that? What if God took us seriously on some of the things that we say? Jim Elliott built that altar, died in the jungles of Ecuador at age 29. David Brainerd built that altar, surrendered his life to preach to the Indians in New York, died of tuberculosis, age 29. William Borden turned his back on one of the largest fortunes of the 20th century, left a life of ease and luxury to go preach the gospel to Muslims in China, died at the age of 25. John Patton built that altar, 
take the gospel to a chain of islands in the South Pacific that's inhabited by cannibals. Arrived in November of 1858, within four months, buried his wife and his infant son. Would suffer incredible hardships, constant dangers for the next four years until he was driven off of the island. Are you sure? Whatever it takes for my will to break. And I'm not talking about just surrendering to the mission field, but surrendering to be a Christian. Every man has an Isaac. And for you to go on for God, you'll have to surrender. And it doesn't mean that God takes away everything that you love. That God takes everything out of your life that is pleasurable. It doesn't mean that God is sadistic. But have you ever placed everything on the altar and said, if you want it, I give it to you. I hold nothing back. I keep nothing back in my hand. But I'd rather have you in my life. I'd rather have your power, your touch, your blessing, your anointing, more than anything in life. I want you. I want your peace. And I want your power. And there is nothing more precious to me That altar. That altar is where you crucify yourself, your anger, your selfishness, your pride, your bitterness. Maybe it's music. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's carnal practices. Maybe it's loose living. But whatever your Isaac is, have you ever laid it on the altar of consecration? And to come to the piano. The spiritual journey is marked by landmarks. I can take you to the place where I got saved. I can take you to the place where God gave me assurance of salvation. I can take you to the place where I surrendered to preach. Places where I've walked with God. Places where God changed me. And in my mind, in my spirit, sometimes I go back to those landmarks. And I'm reminded of what God did in my life. If you tell me your story, will there be any altars? story? Is there any milestones where you met God and God changed you? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.